Hello and welcome back to the Good Work Podcast. I'm Felicity Halstead, your host and the founder of Good Work. My guest today is David McIntosh, who was KPMG's first management consultant apprentice and co-chairs their UK social mobility network. He is also the host of the brilliant Development by David podcast. This just might be my favourite episode yet. We talked about David's own origin story, what drives his work in social mobility, what employers need to know about young people, and how he keeps self-development front and centre in his life. David, welcome to the Good Work Podcast. Felicity, I know this has been an emotion for a very long time. I'm very delighted to be invited along and to join you. We've had some great conversations in the past, and I'm so glad that this one is recorded. Thank you so much. Me too. So you recently published a really great episode of your own podcast where you shared quite a bit about your childhood and your career journey so far. Could you start by just telling us a a snapshot version of that story so that people can get to know you a little bit? I'd love to. I can't promise it'll be a snapshot, but I'll (laughs) try and make it as digestible as possible, Felicity. So if the listeners haven't gathered by my accent, I am very much Scottish. I was born in the west coast of Scotland in a sunny seaside town called Presswick. In the neighbouring town, my father grew up, a town which was once named the most deprived in Scotland. BBC has since then made docuseries about the deprivation in this area. Um, The town is called Kilmarnock. The BBC documentary is called The Scheme. And he was a product of the 1950s. He was forced into kind of child labour around the streets, selling newspapers or milk. He was the oldest of six. And his environment growing up was like something from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Him and his five siblings shared the same bed and wore industrial jackets to keep them warm at night. Whilst he gave all of his disposable income to his parents just to feed the family. On the other hand, my mum was the youngest of six as well. And she never left the family home until her mid-30s, making her an older mother. Mm -hmm. She came straight out of that environment into um, low-paid employment. So for me, this is where I move away from using the term disadvantaged to summarise my upbringing, because I have and had all the advantages that they never had. So my dad then became a Falklands veteran, guarded Buckingham Palace, guarded at Princess Diana's wedding, his trip to colour, and given we're recording shortly after the Queen's passing, I'm very proud of him knowing that story, but unfortunately he has since then been diagnosed with PTSD and depression, and both my mum and my dad have been in and out of low-paid employment for my entire childhood. I've relied on food stamps, at times, I've relied on clothing grants from the army to put to put new school uniform on our backs. I used to go to school concealing my identity by eating lunch under the stairs. I had no friends at school because I was too scared that I would be caught out. I didn't want to be seen to be eating free school meals at school. And I watched my mum and dad both settle for the hand of cards they were given by life and watched them never check to see if there was an ace in the pack and I guess there's a great sense of gratitude in that approach like appreciating everything that you're given but for me and it must have been enabled by social media or magazines or the internet or tv I could see over the other side I could see that I was built for more I could be built for more I just needed access and awareness to opportunity so since then um, I at the age of 11 I found and I can only I can only label this in retrospect the power of role modeling. Yeah, I had an uncle who worked in a bank somewhere, and he said to me, um, after I sold and baked desserts around the houses, that I was good at counting the revenue that I made from selling these sweets. Um, he said, "David, you could be an accountant to mm-hmm. make a lot of money." And I didn't know what an accountant was, Felicity. I honestly had no idea, but I soon learned that all humans cohesively possess the desire to feel important. So bursting with this desire, I went to my next door neighbour, who was my best friend at the time, and told him, I want to be an accountant. And his mum overheard me and she said, but David, your mum and dad didn't go to university. or They aren't smart. They aren't in employment. How on earth could you be an accountant? 
And again, post-rationalizing, I learned a lot about the social mobility landscape. I learned there's a dichotomy mm-hmm. of people from a background like mine where they do what they can't. They use this kind of overarching statement as fuel for their fire and they flip their DNA on their heads. They flip their source code on their head. They flip their postcode on its head. Or unfortunately, there's the other half of the, the dichotomy where they fall into the circle of beliefs that their environment provide them with. You can't be an accountant. Your mom and dad didn't go to university. Pick something more realistic. And yeah. I'm really, really grateful. And it was maybe propelled by social media or the, the comment that my uncle made that I fell into the first camp. So I joined, I picked all kind of business related studies at school. I studied open university accountancy when I was in my final year at school, which for me is S6. I don't know the equivalent in, in England. And I hassled every local accountancy firm for work experience. And they all said no. So I spent my work experience literally selling rolls and desserts and chips and cheese and burgers from our local train station cafe. And I thought at that time, I really thought that that was my, that was my destination. But thankfully, the Social Mobility Foundation came across my lap. And that was because Again, going back to the point of authenticity and concealment, I shared my socioeconomic background for the first time with an older student at my school. Mm-hmm. And he previously had been supported by the Social Mobility Foundation. He said, David, you get free school meals. I hope you don't mind that I ask that. I've got this wonderful opportunity that I embarked on last year. I went to KPMG. I know you want to be an accountant. This is an accountancy form. At this point, I still didn't know what accountancy was and who the big four <laughs> were and yeah, I didn't know any of this stuff. And he, he he told me who KPMG were and told me about the amazing work that the Social Mobility Foundation do. So I applied and I went to London for the very first time, Felicity. I went to Canary Wharf and I wore a suit. In fact, it was a pre-mark suit where the top half of it was navy and the bottom half was, was black. I must have stood out like a sore thumb. And I went down there expecting that there was going to be an archetype of an accountant. And this was some sort of unconscious bias that I had at the time where I thought, an accountant was a rich, middle-class man, middle-aged man in a suit, and he would probably be, be white. And he definitely wasn't from a background like mine. He definitely wasn't Scottish. And I went down there, and that bias was absolutely eradicated by meeting so many other candidates, so many other students on work experience who were just like me and very different to me. And that was the first taste for me, knowing the background that I came from that I could perhaps belong at a place like KPMG. So I then joined their apprenticeship program in 2017. Prior to that, I actually was accepted for an offer in 2016. Again, going back to the pertinent point of concealment, I got an offer to move to Edinburgh at KPMG's Edinburgh office in, in 2016. And I didn't have capital to move to Edinburgh. Yeah. I didn't have money to put into a deposit for a flat. I didn't have money to buy suits and formal attire but so ashamed with this identity I concealed it I just told KPMG recruitment at the time that oh a family issue had cropped up and I can't relocate and in fact I actually spent a year working at a local accountancy firm just to save cash up so I could embark in 2017 in the Glasgow office but only if I was bold enough to share that I came from this background at this moment in time My work could have given me a pre-joiner loan or gave me vouchers to have sponsored some uniform for me. And I'm sure loads of organizations already do this, but it takes the individual to feel brave enough to share that they're going through something like that in order to rectify it. Thank you for sharing all that. And there are so many things that have come up there that I'd love to, to ask you more about. But I think that specific point is really important. And I, I don't think it's about the individual being brave enough. I think it's the onus is on the organization to be more proactive and to recognize that not everyone's got parents who can front them the money for a deposit and to actually proactively go out and, and say, this is what we can offer. So I would say, yeah, don't, don't say it's on you. So that's my view at least. No, I definitely agree with you in that case. There should be a greater service offering for people from a background like mine and it should be well advertised for someone like me to then feel brave enough to share their story because there's a service offering well labeled yeah I definitely agree so as you say there's this kind of dichotomy 
sometimes of you know young people who come from less privileged backgrounds in terms of when people get that kind of idea that you know there is something else out there and as you say you were pretty determined that you were going to change your own life and that you were going to become an accountant and have a career that that was more lucrative do you think that that was something that was inherent in you or do you think that was an accident of circumstances like what do you think drove that real determination that you had it was inherent of my circumstances it was almost like a Mm. survival mechanism yeah I saw the crippling effects that the lack of disposable income had on my family they were heavily in debt all of our holidays all of our Christmases were financed by payday loans and it crippled them eventually and I seen the effects that that had on them and for me the reason I wanted to be an accountant wasn't to live a lavish lifestyle or fit the bill of the characters in suits uh, (laughs) on Netflix it was to give my mum the luxuries and the delights that the neighbours had whether it was to go out for a coffee or to have a day out to the cinema or to a restaurant because all of their disposable income were was used to funnel and finance um payday loans and things like that so and this is where I kind of reflect on my best friend my best friend comes from the complete opposite of the background I came from Mm -hmm. he has not had to work part-time or whilst at university he's not had to go through some of the hurdles and motions that I've had to go through I've had to help parents with universal credit applications and grants and all these things that are enabled by technology these days and I've seen him not reach his potential or what I believe is his perceived potential but then again I don't understand how hard his life is based on the shoes that he walks in Mm -hmm. I'm seeing his life through the hurdles that I've had to jump and only recently I've been able to give other people empathy on their stories because I don't know within context how difficult everyone's journey is so it's just by chance that I've been placed in this world and a family that I have and been placed with the hurdles that I've had to learn how to jump. And unfortunately, I've had to learn how to jump. And that's what's propelled that motivation in me. I think if I was in my best friend's shoes, I would probably react and act the same way as he has. Yeah. And it has given me a complex, I guess, this search for academic validation now that I'm in the workplace or a complex where... I'm scared in case my past creeps up on me. I get f- I get caught out. So I'm on the hedonic treadmill, running at full pace, always looking for more, always trying to run away from Pac-Man. That's what it seems yeah. like. I'm playing Pac-Man and I'm getting chased and I'm meeting <laughs> uh, achievements on the way. And yeah, that's propelled because of my background. Totally yeah. positive. So you went to KPMG in Glasgow to do an apprenticeship straight out of school. Did you consider going to university? What was the journey into an apprenticeship for you? So some of the advice that I have spoken about on conferences before with HR professionals or student recruitment professionals is we should be making apprenticeships sexy (laughs) because we should. We should be making it sexy. Is HR sexy? (laughs) But fair enough. We should be, I think we should be making apprenticeship sexy. And what I mean by that is for a less privileged young person, university is so sexy. Like getting getting to go and meet new people, go out to Freshers' Fair and go to Freshers' and Mm -hmm. go nights out, live in a new city surrounded by new people in a new environment. Mm -hmm. That, and that's been well marketed for over 50 years. People know what to expect from university because we've had people walk that path apprenticeships and professional services are quite newfound Mm -hmm. 50 years ago an apprentice was someone who was blue collar and perhaps a carpenter so this day and age we especially post-covid we are redefining what apprenticeships look like and I think what HR professionals should do or organizations should do is make apprenticeship sexy and what I mean by that is perhaps on the recruitment website is show definitely show the apprenticeship pathway what David McIntosh from Presswick expects to go on the qualifications that he expects to receive the department rotations that he expects to embark on 
yes, that's great. That's transparent. That's what I should be given as patient zero. However, young people go to university and work to not only solve societal problems, but their own personal problems. So they should also show a case study that David has gained X qualification, Y skill, met Z role model, but also been able to save up for driving lessons or go on X amount of holidays or get a deposit for a first flat or has managed to save because that's what would make an apprenticeship sexy to a 16 or 17 year old what an apprenticeship has enabled for them and for me that was so well marketed by kpmg at that moment in time and given my previous point about how i had i was pac-man and i was being chased by my financial circumstances the fact that kpmg were so transparent about this was what enticed me to take the leap and join an apprenticeship and i haven't looked back since you're preaching to the choir with me because so much of of the work that I do is about those alternatives to university and I think that point you make about advertising and marketing that whole journey and what it means and looks like and you know people have that idea of like the grad job too right that the grads will be out for drinks after work and all having fun and like getting to know each other and actually that you know apprentices can have that social side too you know I think is really important and I think you're right that we collectively need to do a better job of of marketing those alternative routes out of school. Totally agree. So speaking about alternative routes out of school, as you say, you know, you did an apprenticeship. What do you think of the offers that are there for young people at the moment? And with your social mobility hat on I guess for want of a better word what do you think that employers particularly employers who are just kind of taking the first step into this space because let's give credit where it's due organizations like KPMG well they're not perfect they have been doing lots over many years to support young people from a diverse range of backgrounds to access work as have lots of other big professional services firms what can small organizations be doing and what can industry at large be doing to engage with that broader, more diverse group of young people at the entry level and making sure that people know about the options that are available to them and have options available that suit people whose circumstances may be a bit different? Great question. What I love about this post-COVID world is our access to talent. Mm-hmm. Previously, you, especially in a consulting firm, you would have to be domiciled in London or an area where the client HQ typically sat. But now in this remote or hybrid world, we can serve client needs from Stornoway as we can in Southampton. And the diversity of thought, the diversity of background of the people from all these different locations is really, really valuable. And I think being able to recruit individuals remotely is and apprentices remotely is a huge plus for diversity and for value for client but when I say that I'm also conscious that I wouldn't want to see a world where apprentices are completely remote Mm -hmm. because there is so much that I learned over the last the first three years of my career that was over the shoulder or by the water cooler or at the coffee machine there is the concept of culture capital which is the kind of traits and tastes that you hold that are innate to you that you can cash in for reward and that could be and I know we're not shooting the video but I have a Truman show uh, picture behind my head Uh, I have a guitars to my my right these little quirks when mentioned in the office can get you ahead Mm -hmm. it develops really strong bonds that make you unforgettable when opportunity arises so I think there is a balance to be struck when considering employing apprentices both remotely and in in person. Again, I think what would be useful, what I would have wanted as a less privileged 15 or 16 year old considering apprentices, um, what would have attracted me more was perhaps two things, two types of FAQ sheets. Mm-hmm. The first one would be like a lifestyle FAQ, something to entice me to move to Edinburgh or London, which would be like a pack that would demonstrate where the cheapest rental prices are for flats or where the, che- the cheapest gyms are or where the cheapest night out is. 
because yeah. that would encourage me to move from Stornoway up in the north to Edinburgh because one it was financially feasible but two it was a complete lifestyle change I don't think that's well marketed or well supported and I think that would encourage a diversity of location and background and thought into different firms I also think those who come from a more privileged background may overlook and over un, overlook and underprice their hereditary tool set. These are things such as how to write a CV, how to dress in the office, how to sign off an email, how to communicate in a hierarchy. I think by creating an FAQ cheat sheet of these soft skills prior to a less privileged young person joining a firm would one entice them to join, but two get them ahead once they join. So these are two ideas that I've been kind of toying with recently that I'd love to put into actualization at my own firm. But I think it's something that all firms should provide for less privileged 16 or 17 year old or any 16 or 17 year old who may fancy an apprenticeship over university. Yeah, well, that's those are ideas that I'm just going to unashamedly steal because we're opening our internship applications at Good Work in the next couple of weeks. So uh, there's, there's still time for us to, to stick those on the website. And in all seriousness, we've been thinking about exactly those things too. And there are organizations, I mean, I know you mentioned the Social Mobility Foundation, who you came across as a teenager, as I think you know, like I previously had worked with them, and they're an incredible charity that opened my eyes to a, a whole world of possibilities in terms of the scope and the scale of the of the social mobility challenge and the work that needs to be done and it's really interesting because obviously there are there are tons of organizations like that and I always say you know I don't think that we should be in competition with each other and to their credit I, I've never felt like we are as I've been growing kind of my own work in this space um the work of my organization but I think those tools and those resources, as you say, are not always immediately available and accessible to everybody. And it's about democratizing that information. 100%. One of the observations I've made about the social mobility landscape is that a lot of programs, and I'm lucky to be one of these people, are pivoted towards aspiring young people. And the criteria for aspiring can be wide ranging across different charities, of course. But there's individuals who are yet to understand that they can be aspiring. If we go back to the dichotomy that I mentioned earlier, they fall into camp too, don't they? So I think what organisations could and should do are target these kind of formative teenagers who are at this kind of benchmark age of maybe 12 or 13 where they're about to embrace that dichotomy and provide them role models whether it's a professional digitally going back to school or mm-hmm. in person going back to school and just sharing their journey if they come from a lower socioeconomic background so that someone who was previously in camp two of the dichotomy can then believe that no they can flip their dna and become an accountant or a podcaster or an astronaut or anything in between those three I love those being like the three points on the spectrum of careers a podcaster an accountant or an astronaut but I think that point that you're making there is also really important and making sure as well that we don't say to any young person, you know, the options are be a doctor, a lawyer or an accountant. There is so much diversity of jobs out there. There are so many industries that most young people have never heard of, roles that didn't used to exist. And making sure that that is open and available to everyone, I think, is crucial. I cannot agree more. And it's such a shame that 15, 16 or 17 year olds are forced by a public narrative to pick a career for a life. They think whatever university course they Mm -hmm. pick will be their job in 60 years or they think whatever apprenticeship they choose will be their job. I think in the 80s and 90s, yes, loyalty totally meant success. Loyalty to a firm got you through the hierarchy. But in this day and age, organizations value this diversity of thought they they love if you bounce between organizations or go back to university Mm -hmm. and I think it's a stark message for 16 or 17 year olds that what you do need to do is make a decision at that age because a lot of people don't know what they want and and I think that's a, a pertinent problem for those from a lower socioeconomic background because they have had less life experience they don't have these role models these archetype figures in their life they don't have aunties and uncles who work in different industries or family friends who do they can only see perhaps unemployment or 
blue collar jobs and blue collar jobs are totally fine but it might not align with the desires of the the young person i'm really a strong believer and it's maybe a controversial message is that not knowing what you want is like floating in a body of water and you shouldn't wait for someone to save you or rescue you at that age you should just pick a direction and go for it and if it fails if it's the wrong direction that's fine because failure is a mechanism to absorb and curate information failure is great and by making wrong decisions we're able to make the right ones so i think a message for 16 or 17 year olds is making a decision albeit the wrong one is still better than not making a decision at all it's that idea of there's nothing worse sitting still or not going anywhere or spinning your wheels because you don't know what choice to make because failure is is not a problem but I, I want to talk a little bit more about your experience in a fairly corporate space of social mobility. You know, I think it's kind of this is twofold. So the first one being, how do you think your experience perhaps was different coming from a lower socioeconomic background? Or did you have any particular experiences maybe in your early days or, or still now where you thought, wow, this is not an environment that is necessarily used to people like me or that people like me are necessarily always made to feel welcome in I guess that would be my first question and my second would be thinking about social mobility work in corporate spaces I know that you've driven forward some work within the business that you're currently in to to make those spaces more welcoming and inclusive what's driven that and what has that experience been like I'll attempt to answer the first question and attempt to remember the second Felicity I think they're both amazing questions and I'm so glad you asked them both so did I feel like an imposter at KPMG? Yes. Would I have felt that at any other organization? Yes. And what I can post-rationalize and all these thoughts and feelings and ideologies, yes, they're post-rationalized. I had to endure some area of discomfort to get out the other side and have these opinions. Um, but what I can post-rationalize is when imposter syndrome shows up, say thank you. Because it is a signal that you are putting something into existence that already doesn't exist in fact we're all imposters of each other because mm -hmm. only we can bring to the world what we can which is our identity our background our traits our tastes we are all a neurological makeup of different experiences so we should all have imposter syndrome but at the time it, it was crippling I thought, oh, I can't join in the ski holiday chat. I can't speak about the wines that I drank at the weekend. Oh, I definitely can't speak about what private school I went to. And I definitely didn't go to university. So I can't speak about mm -hmm. the social occasions that, or the parties that went on in university. But I found, eventually found comfort in that. And I, I, I did find discomfort in it previously because we used to have a dress code where we would wear suits to work. So it was so easy to mimic the archetype of the rich, middle-class, middle-aged man in a suit because I had the suit and I was white and I was male. I just wasn't mm -hmm. middle-class or middle-aged. But when we removed that necessity to wear office attire when we didn't need it, I could wear a t-shirt that I got on holiday or I could wear funky socks or I could, even in this post-COVID world or hybrid world, I was once asked by an external party to blur my background when speaking to students and I attested that I would not do that. Because there's so much of me behind this screen. There's my guitar, my books, my Truman Show canvas and my album artwork. And they are things that make me, me. And I found solace in that. So now that I'm back in the mm -hmm. office, I try and embrace that entire identity and work because it's my duty to the world. And not only that, it's a, it's a self-development mechanism. By presenting your, your, your true self as a, mental, as a mental health aid. And what I mean by that is, if you wear a facade felicity and it is praised or is given affection or love, you don't feel that. It's the persona that receives that. But equally, if you are a recipient of developmental feedback or negative commentary or criticism, you can think, well, it's, it's, I didn't, it wasn't me at that opportunity, so I don't need to work on myself. I don't need to improve. I don't need to re retrospect on that. Yeah. So the, the ego or the facade is only available to receive praise, not love. And I think by embracing your identity, you can create a concept that I have called a one true connection. 
And I believe everyone should develop a one true connection. And how you do that is you just pick anybody in the office, absolutely anybody, and you go to them and display what makes you you. Your highlights, your lowlights, your background, your desired outcome, what makes you tick. And there's going to be some repercussions of that. But one of them would be that person totally aligns with the outcomes that you want to achieve with or the highlights that you've had or the lowlights that you've had, and you create a bond over that. Or two, the person doesn't resonate with any of that, but knows someone who does, and they connect you with that individual. And then you do the same with that individual, and it has a compound spider web effect, and you garner a network. Um, and it's known, I think LinkedIn did a study that showed that those from a lower socioeconomic background have 11 times less of a social network than their privileged peers. So by creating this one true connection, I believe it's an aid that moves um, them forward and building their network. And Felicity, you're going to have to remind me of what your second question is. <laughs> so the second question was, I'm aware from our previous conversations that you've done quite a lot of work within the organization that you work in around improving those feelings of inclusion for other people and talking more about social mobility. Can you talk a bit a little bit about what has driven you to do that and, and what the impact of that is? And I guess what your vision would be for how we can really achieve true social mobility in corporate spaces. I, I'd love for the social mobility network that I chair not to exist. That's the dream goal, that we don't need this space because we are entirely inclusive. And to answer that question, I'll probably share my roadmap of entering the firm and the social mobility journey that I've been on because I think it illuminates the answer to that. So when I joined KPMG in 2017, I was very grateful that I joined. Like I said, I didn't think someone from my background could ever enter, never mind progress in a firm like that. So I felt an obligation to quote unquote, give back. Like I kind of do what I can within the measures that I have to give back. So I reached out to the Social Mobility Foundation and just I did some presentations and I helped some fourth year graduates receive employment at KPMG and in appraisal meetings at KPMG in Scotland specifically, I would mention, oh, I'm doing this work in social mobility. Please include it in my performance review. And our managers were always like, David, that's so great. But what is social mobility and how did you get involved? And for me, that showed, despite KPMG being a leading employer in social mobility for over a decade, always placing in the Social Mobility Employers Index, being a founding partner of the Living Wage Foundation and being the being the first in industry to publish a socioeconomic pay gap report and publish workforce socioeconomic data, it made me realise that in Scotland we're a little bit behind the curve. So I founded KPMG in Scotland's Social Mobility Network. At the time, we paired 75 less privileged individuals through the Social Mobility Foundation with 75 of our employees across Aberdeen, Edinburgh and Glasgow. That opportunity allowed me different platforms to relay the success of that, but not only that, it allowed me to share my story, the same story that I brought to life earlier. And what I noticed, Felicity, was that people were saying comments and emails such as, David, I went on caravan holidays too, but I would never be so brave to share that with colleagues or David, he got education maintenance allowance and I spent it on XYZ. I would never share that. You're so brave to share that. And that tumbleweeded continuously when I shared my story in front of 18,000 colleagues. And ultimately the, the paramount of that was that I was asked to speak with Her Majesty the Queen in 2020 and share the, the exact same story and the same Genesis story to date. And, and of course, the outcome of that was me feeling so fulfilled that the Queen cared about where I came from yeah. and that she actually visited that place. And I got to talk about my dad being a veteran at Buckingham Palace and all that good stuff. But the key outcome of that was that people, again, and bucket loads were saying, David, I have the same story as you, but you're so brave to share it. So at that point, KPMG realized that there is some great individuals doing great things in social mobility and from a less privileged background. Within our firm, we just need to join the dots. So I was asked to roll out and chair KPMG's social mobility network. We now have 700 members and we are working towards a social mobility conference in October with loads of great British organisations and charities within the social mobility landscape coming together to make a practical improvement in this space. 
So this network serves to celebrate the identities and backgrounds of those from a less privileged background. And what I've seen has worked really, really well is, again, the component of authenticity. People just sharing what school they went to and how that affected them. I was so naive to believe that social mobility only related to apprentices and graduates and disadvantaged young people or less privileged young people. But in fact, a social mobility journey affects people who have gone on to directors, become directors and partners. They have a dichotomy or they have the inner conflict of what school to send their kids to. If they never went to private school but now can afford to put kids through private school, do they do that? There's so many enabling or disabling factors of your past that crop up when making decisions for the future. And I was so naive to believe that once you make a certain level at KPMG, social mobility is no longer a problem, but it definitely is. It's the whole social part of socioeconomic that still lags like a ball and chain. So we have created a safe space within the network for people to have these conversations. And I'm so delighted that some of our individuals at KPMG have solved personal problems because of these open lips and these open discussions. And to answer the second part of your question, I'm often asked what the KPI of the social mobility network is or my work in the social mobility space is. And I say, I'm sorry, it doesn't exist. There's no such thing as a KPI, but what I can give you is an EPI, an emotional performance indicator. And it's that I'm no longer categorized as brave for sharing my story anymore. Yeah, it's funny that because it's 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 hard isn't it because like I would never suggest I mean everything I've thought about what you've just said in the last few minutes brave is the word that I would use to you know you talk about as a young apprentice in your early 20s maybe not even being 20 yet at the time talking to 18,000 colleagues what an incredible thing to do that people who are substantially older than you and have had all the privileges life could send could be terrified of doing but I think you're absolutely right it's about normalizing those conversations I, I totally agree I, I don't know what it was in me to be hyper normalized to these circumstances <laughs> but I guess it was knowing what I want yeah and shooting in the right direction towards that yeah I, I didn't mention in my story but in 2020 I lost my mum this whole inner monologue of I'm going to be an accountant was to give her what she never had. So not only did she pass away, my North Star died alongside her. And yeah. I obviously had bereavement leave and I picked up some really great personal habits. Those included meditation and journaling because they provided me with solitude to work out what I wanted from life. Yeah. And one of my practices that I do every single day is I write a positive affirmation. And that positive affirmation is, to be an, a leader of inspired individuals and to be recognized by society for my unique and concrete impact on communities. So by having this really tangible North Star to follow, it makes those conversations with 18,000 colleagues or with Her Majesty the Queen or on the podcast that I have recorded, mm -hmm. it makes them so much easier because I know it's moving me incrementally to the, towards that North Star. Yeah, I think that's what lighted that fire in me to, 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 to do that, Felicity. I, I made it a little bit easier, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think coming back to the why every single day is so important. It's one of the reasons that I do this podcast, actually, is because while it's a great thing that we do as part of our work, it also, by having conversations like this with people like you, I get to be reminded on a very frequent basis of what we're doing this for. And, and I think that that really does, does drive me. So you mentioned just then your own podcast, which brings me very nicely into the thing I want to ask you about next. So your own podcast has some really incredible and inspiring guests and, and you've talked about using origin stories which I guess is kind of what you've you've given me today as well as a self-development tool I really want to understand what you mean by that and where that idea came from because I think it, it's a really fascinating take to use people's stories in that way so yeah as I say like where did that idea come from and and how did it emerge as a as a podcast I'm so glad you asked this question I'm so passionate about the mission statement of the podcast and I'm really 
really privileged and proud that you think it's intriguing and interesting and you align with it, Felicity. Thank you so much for that. The reason it exists is because, again, post-rationalizing my own journey, when I was 15 or 16, when I had this crazy North Star, this crazy tunnel vision, probably full of testosterone because I was going through puberty, <laughs> I looked I looked online for role models because I never had role models. Well, I did have a role model. I had my father who was a role model in a very different industry and aspect that I wanted to achieve in. And like I said earlier, I didn't have aunties and uncles in different industries, so I had to look online and curate them for myself. So I looked at podcasts. I looked at Tim Ferriss, who's a well-known self-development guru, Seth Godin, who I was privileged enough to, to record with, Gary Vaynerchuk. And these individuals were very verbose, very articulate, very technical. And thankfully, because of this tunnel vision, I was very well-read enough. I was very well-read to kind of digest this content, reflavor it into my own worldview. But I realized that people from my background don't have that skill set or might not have that skill set. And what would be useful for them is to hear a local story or a story in their accent or just mm -hmm. a story in plain English or just a story at all of someone coming from something or nothing to something or embracing failure. So I reached out to my immediate network at the time who were, who in the first episode was with a woman called Jen Gillies Pemberton, who was my external mentor. I bumped into her in a taxi on the way to the airport. I was given this flash corporate American Express um, to go on a business trip with work to get some training. And the taxi driver at the, the, the rank that I was at didn't accept it. So this wonderful woman, Jen, stepped into the taxi ahead of me. And she turned around with sincere generosity and said, son, are you going to the airport? I'm going to jump in the taxi. And I displayed my background to her, my origin story to her for the first time. And she did the same with me. And at that moment, there's a fire that was alight in me. And that's, I realized the power of transparency when she told me her story, resonating a story where she came from a local town and she had built a charity called Ants UK who impacts thousands of lives. So I recruited her for the first episode and interviewed my friends transparently for the next few. And I think that mission statement has allowed me to get on some of the most incredible guests. And mm -hmm. I don't mean to be narcissistic when I mention their names or try to credentialize no, them, not. but I've had people like 15 or 16 year old David idolized next week, a week today I'm interviewing Sir Tom Hunter, Scotland's first billionaire and Scotland's richest man. Wow. He gave his Genesis story as a speech to my school when I was 14 or 15. I remember he said, be a radiator, not a drain. And that always stuck with me. So being able to showcase his story, Seth Godin's story, Netflix documentary stars, the founder of Reebok, the ex-CEO of Sony Music, and some fascinating local characters in between that. It's been a real privilege to, to have shared that and to have even ranked top 12 in the UK recently. And to have went viral at times I'm very very privileged very privileged to be given the trust to have these conversations and it's been amazing to see some people resonate with some of the stories and even I have this concept where there's no such thing as an, a bad autobiography mm. even if someone has had a catastrophic life and has failed at every hurdle <laughs> by reading that and wearing their spectacles of life for half an hour or a few hours you can avoid collision and you can avoid catastrophe by just reading these autobiographies so uh, having the privilege to even share some crazy wild stories including a story where a gentleman was on death row for 22 years for a crime that he didn't commit being able to sh have that trust to share that story has been an absolute delight felicity and i'm so glad that you asked that question thank you and it's interesting as you say you mentioned role models who are your role models now hmm uh, so why the Truman Show is so important to me is I I live life as if I'm in the Truman Show. Okay. That people that people have you watched the Truman Show before? No, I haven't. Okay, so for the listeners' sake, the Truman Show is a film where at birth Jim Carrey mm -hmm. is is a gentleman called Truman, and he is filmed for his entire life. His entire life is staged in a kind of dome where millions of people watch his life on TV every single day. Okay. And wow. Yeah, it's a, it's a brilliant symbolic film. Mm -hmm. So I live my life as if everyone is watching me. 
okay. as a future David who has a son is watching me. And yeah. I make decisions based on what he what what decisions he would make. It's so it's so bizarre. I don't have immediate role models in that aspect. I just trust. I put trust that I do I complete activities and make moral decisions based on what 50-year-old David would do or if everyone else was watching. That being said, I have some amazing mentors in my life at KPMG. Some are global partners of KPMG who mm-hmm. come from a very similar background to me. And they give me the space to talk about personal dilemmas, whether it's personal finance or whether it's navigating relationships or making career moves or podcast moves. So I'm very lucky to have a uh, a series of mentors and I get inspiration every single day from each one of my guests that I, I have on the podcast um, I think what is beautiful about podcasting and the ideal outcome of a podcast episode is that the guest and the host create something come together and build something by the end of the conversation that they didn't enter the conversation with and I, I really feel that we have done that positively. So I hope I've answered that question. Maybe a bit of an abstract woo-woo answer. I think it's really interesting. Um, and you, well, you know, for, for the listeners, you did give me a bit of a look when I said I'd not seen the Truman <laughs> Show. So clearly I've like missed something, a major cultural touchstone that I need to go and correct that. So I'm going to put that on my list. But yeah, no, I think I get that. You can do that on a micro level as well, right? Like I do sometimes think when it's a Friday at 4 p.m. and you're like, I could clock off or I could do future Felicity a favor and finish that task that I, I haven't quite done. You can do that on a micro level, but actually living your life doing that on a macro level, I can imagine the impact of that is huge. So that's that's really interesting. 100%. On that same episode where I speak about my journey and the soul cuny, I speak about the concept of happiness and why I think happiness is not a state, it's a, it's a symptom. And that people aim for happiness when it is a fleeting emotion. It's a fleeting symptom. And I have a concept of aiming for regrets minimization. And that's a concept where I want to do all the things that in my 20s and 30s that I have the notion to undertake so that six-year-old David isn't, or 70-year-old David or 80 or 90-year-old David, David who may be ill and decrepit and immobile or, or maybe on, on death's bed. I want to have no regrets of the actions that I took in my 20s and 30s so I think maybe even 90 year old David is my role model in that aspect yeah I like that so I've got a couple more questions for you the first one is hopefully quite timely which is just talking about the here and now and you know you reference the very strange moment that we're in right now which is literally the time between the queen passing away and the queen's funeral we're in the midst of a cost of living crisis, there is global instability. Life is is very weird and also really tough right now for a lot of people. What would you say to a young person who is feeling bleak about the future? It's a good question. And I don't mean to discredit how people are feeling during this time. I feel symptoms of what I see in the news. Mm-hmm. I think what I would recommend and I embodied this when I lost my mum, is that don't underestimate the power of personal responsibility. Yeah. And control the controllables and don't control the uncontrollables or don't try to because you'll be met with instant dissatisfaction. We, we can't help what's going on in terms of the cost of living crisis or the outbreak or the war outbreak in Ukraine or the passing of Queen Elizabeth. But what we can do is control our schedules and control our good habits and figure out what we want to do and control those things, embody a great routine in the morning, yeah, things like that. Like control the controllables, I would believe in. I, I think that's probably the biggest piece of advice because it's, it's so easy to dampen your existence by turning on the news and seeing what's going on. But it's, so, it's still possible to find happiness every single day through the micro tasks as part of your routine and things like that. I feel like the more news there is, the less news I consume because it's it's that direct impact that it has on your body and soul, right? So this is my final question. And that is, if there was a book or a podcast that you'd say has perhaps changed the way you think, and I, I know because you've mentioned it, that you're a, a big consumer of books and likely of podcasts as well, what would it be? Again, this is going to be a very woo-woo 
answer because that's just who I am. I'm sorry, Felicity. That's okay. I really struggle to prescribe a book or a podcast to someone because for me, books have spoken to me at times that I've needed it and haven't spoken to me at other times. Yeah. Podcasts have done the exact same. Sometimes you're ready to receive certain pieces of information and sometimes you just aren't. Mm -hmm. But some of my favorite personal books are and it's maybe pertinent to some of your listeners, is Dr. Meg Jay's The Defining Decade. And it's all about why the moments in your 20s dictate the rest of your life and how to navigate your 20s to set up a very foundational rest of life. I think it's a brilliant book, very well written. Another book that I really love is Albert Laszlo Barabasi's The Formula. Albert Laszlo Barabasi is a, I believe, Hungarian or Romanian physicist who basically deconstructs success in science and he basically provides all of the formulas for success one of the key ones i learned was about performance how performance is bounded but success is unbounded Mm -hmm. so the example i use is usain bolt we all know universally that he is the world record holding printer he is the one that gets the Puma deals. He is the one that gets the Virgin Media deals. However, we don't really know who ran second place in that same race. In terms of performance, he was a margin slower. Yeah. M- a few milliseconds. That margin does not directly translate into the differential between the success of first place and second place. So I learned about performance in that aspect. I learned that success is not about performance. It's about perceived performance. To obtain perceived performance, you need an ecosystem of people around you to praise your accomplishments so other people hear it and that garners more success. Um, There's the whole saying of a conquer fell from a, uh, a tree and no one was around to hear it, did it really happen? It really essentially brings to life the impact of having a network around you, a social network around you, and the science behind that and how that propels success is a really great read. Um, I call it my Bible because I've read it three or four times and I have it on all platforms on Kindle. Um, and I've recommended it to all my close acquaintances. I try and not recommend it to too many people. I know I'm sharing it on a podcast because I think it's <laughs> it's amazing specific knowledge that really once you learn, you can't unlearn. There is a book as well that I like prescribe to everyone I meet. And I have probably got to stop doing that because whenever I tell someone to read it, they quit their job. But that's what happened to me as well. So um, when I oh, first read it. Please share the book. What is it? It's called Work Won't Love You Back by Sarah Jaff. Okay. It's, a, it's a really good read, um, but I won't be held responsible by KPMG if you <laughs> read it and quit your job. David, I think that brings us to a really nice close. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you today. Felicity, thank you for giving me the space. Thank you for being such a great host. And thanks for being so empathetic through the entire podcast. You. You're really great at this. And I'm so, so, so delighted that you invited me along. I really mean that. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you share it with friends and colleagues, leave us a review and check your subscribed so you don't miss us next week. To keep up with all things Good Work, follow us at Good Work UK on LinkedIn. The Good Work podcast is brought to you by Good Work, a social impact business on a mission to make early careers fairer, more inclusive and more meaningful. We're working to remove barriers for young people from less privileged backgrounds and support businesses to reimagine their approach to entry-level talent and skills. Thank you for listening. We will see you next time.